Hi, my name is Amy. And my name is James. And this is How I Learned to Love Shrimp, a podcast about promising ways to help animals and build the animal advocacy movement. Happy New Year, everyone. We hope you've all had a really restful holiday season. Since March last year, James and I released 20 episodes and have nearly 10,000 downloads from this amazing community. And we just wanted to pop on to say we've really appreciated everyone's continued feedback and guest recommendations. And we're really looking forward to interviewing some more great guests this year. So thanks so much for your support so far. A long overdue episode this week on alternative proteins and how food products that are free from animals are a key piece in the journey towards our collective goal of animal freedom. We were particularly interested in the for-profit space for this episode and how providing capital to startup companies is driving this market forward. Our guest, Simon Newstead, entrepreneur turned impact investor, does exactly that through his company Better Bite Ventures, who back food tech founders in Asia. We deep dive into the world of alt protein and the different technologies available. We look at Asia specifically, where Simon's work is focused and the challenges this industry is facing as a whole. We also quiz Simon on his view on the timelines we should work towards to see this global shift in consumption. Today we're joined by Simon Newstead, entrepreneur turned impact investor and one of the two partners of Better Bite Ventures. Welcome, Simon. Thanks very much, Amy. And uh, hi, James. Thanks for joining. We get stuck in with our opening question, which is what's an animal related view that you've changed your mind on recently and why? maybe break it down into short term and, and super long term. So in the short term, I think it's kind of, uh, I've read some recent analyses, which really kind of emphasize about just how much kind of short term suffering kind of opportunities are dominated by animal agriculture. Uh, and in particular, shrimp, which is kind of, you know, timely given the, the, the title of the podcast. <laughs> so I think in terms of like shrimp paste is probably the worst product on the planet in terms of animal suffering. Um, in terms of like per kilogram. Right. Uh, so that's something that's kind of, I guess, reinforced or even more weighted kind of, you know, my, my perspective around kind of uh, animals uh, and why it's important we do what we do. And then something in kind of like the longer term would be around about uh, animal suffering within kind of a, a simulated environment. So I think that that is potentially a really kind of important cause area for the long term uh, and something that you know, outside of my day job uh, is something that I'm kind of interested to to learn more about and see how we can contribute. So kind of sentient suffering within the context of simulations um, in the future, uh, whether it's animal, wild animal or humans. Uh, I think that's a particularly interesting one and hard to know the timeframes, but, but yeah, that's, that's something for the longer term. Can you clarify maybe what you mean by that simulated environment? So the, the idea that you know, in the future, it's conceivable, maybe in our lifetimes, it's conceivable that there could be very powerful computer simulations of environments, um, you know, for various purposes like entertainment, you know, ecosystem planning, um, just for randomness. Um, and if that's the case, then it's possible that animal suffering on an absolute scale will be dominated by simulations rather than like sentient suffering within simulations rather than you know, the real world or the base world. Um, so that sounds a bit sci-fi and a bit out there, but you know, <laughs> I'm seeing some very smart people um, who are, you know, projecting that some things may be possible within a 50-year time frame. So, yeah. you know, it's important to start thinking about them and maybe setting the kind of the, the ethical kind of norms or, or hopeful norms um, to 
prevent that sort of thing happening. Maybe analogous to you know scientific experiment on on lab animals, which has kind of been accepted as you know ethically fine, uh, and you could still argue it is in certain cases, but you know egregious you know uses of it for unnecessary purposes um, was just accepted because it was kind of the you know allowed. And so, yeah, much further on, I think we need to start preparing for that in the future. And um, so that's kind of very much outside of my day job, kind of old protein investing, <laughs> but but it's something that I'm I'm kind of um, learning more about and and um, exploring. Yeah, great. Definitely one of the most interesting answers to that question. Yeah, it sounds like you're t- taking time. Well, when you're not your day job, you're thinking about even more intense suffering than what's currently happening. So that that's, sounds like not an easy day by any means. But also, it's interesting <laughs> you mentioned shrimp paste because we actually at, we, mm. we we asked some people about questions for this podcast, and someone actually sent in something about shrimp paste. So we'll, we'll definitely come back to that later on. Awesome. Uh, so that's yeah, exciting to hear. Cool. Well, I guess in, in a nutshell, obviously you're a one of the partners at Better Bite Ventures. Just in a nutshell, what is Better Bite Ventures, and what do you guys do? We are an early stage VC, so venture capital fund. So we basically invest partners' money into private companies at early stages. And we focus on uh, climate-friendly food tech, which is a, a kind of a major focus on alternative protein. So so we're early stages and we, we invest anywhere from founding. So like one scientist with an idea or one you know entrepreneur who wants to leave a company and start their own Um right through to pre-seed and seed stage. So we're typically investing hundreds of thousands of dollars um, into companies at, at this early stage. Um, so within that, um, I'm one of the two partners. So we're based here in Asia Pacific um, and we focus on Asia. Um, my partner, Mikhail, uh, and I are the kind of two partners and we have another teammate, uh, Sakshan. Um, so we're a team of three, so very lean and mean uh, team. Um, and we're kind of investing so far, I've made um, 20 plus investments in different startups uh, around the region. So a lot of engaging with f- founders, um, learning about what they're doing, seeing how we can support them both financially as well as in, in other ways. And how can you guys focus exclusively on Asia rather than a broader geographic focus? Asia, if you think about it, is it's over 40% of the world's meat consumption. So just total protein, um, if you think about like pork, um, like if you pick a random pig anywhere on the planet, chances are that pig is in living in China, right? Um, mm. If you do the same for other species, you know, chicken, et cetera, um, there's just a lot of meat being consumed and it's also the fastest growing. So for example, in the last kind of uh, 40, 50 years, the, the population has, um, you know, close to tripled. And yet the amount of meat consumed has, has gone up well over 15 times in, in that amount. So it's rising population and rising per capita consumption uh, of meat. And seafood is even more. So 70% of the world's seafood is consumed in Asia. Um, and from a climate change perspective, you know, over 40% of all emissions are coming from Asia. So yeah, the amount of investments or capital going into alt protein um, in Asia Pacific is well under that. So, you know, on an aggregate basis, it would be probably around about the 10% mark. So there's a discrepancy there. And for us, that means a chance to have an impact um, and also, you know, the return perspective for, you know, our investors as well. So the kind of financial upside, but also the, the impact piece of something that's very neglected and very high kind of uh, impact size. Yeah. 
the numbers are just yeah completely unfathomable i think uh i remember learning about the the sort of offshore multi-story like pig confinement um it just it's like beyond isn't it the lens that we'll go to just farm on such a huge scale um particularly in in asia so yeah it definitely seems like a, a really worthy investment um putting a lot of time and energy into funding that space um in in alt protein and so when you're talking about alt protein um what is your kind of definition of that what are you talking about when you refer to alternative proteins we look at it fairly broadly like you know alternatives to meat dairy eggs and seafood uh, kind of across that scope um we are kind of focused on food so we don't look at for example materials like alternatives to silk or something like that um so we we stay within food and within that there's different buckets of um technologies and we invest across pretty much all of them so You've got your traditional plant-based, which is kind of you know mimicking products using plant ingredients, and that's very much here and now. Um, and then you have fermentation, including you know biomass fermentation, precision fermentation, where you're kind of engineering microorganisms to produce animal compounds. Um, and then you've got like cultivated, so for example, cultivated meat, um, where you're kind of growing cells in a bioreactor and kind of multiplying them, and, and uh, then eventually harvesting them for consumption. Um, and then also molecular farming, which is about taking a plant and engineering it to produce other um, animal compounds or functionally equivalent animal compounds. Um, so that's kind of the, the broad buckets. Um, there's probably some others as well in there, like traditional fermentation, uh, et cetera. Um, but we kind of have invested across all of those major technology buckets to make alternatives to animal products. I'll just say to people who want to know more about the technologies, we won't dive into them because time is short and other people have done so, but I would recommend that there's some podcasts with 80,000 Hours and Bruce Friedrich and also Seren Kell from the Good Food Institute that does kind of dive into the technologies in terms of the nuances between plant-based versus cultivated and fermentation. So I'd recommend people listen to those if they want slightly more, slightly more context on the conversation uh, or just for listening. If someone wants to do of animals and reduce animal suffering, what's the case that they should work on alternative proteins in an investing or for-profit context versus, let's say, working at a non-profit doing campaigning? I think that's a really important one. And maybe some people listening to this podcast are thinking, you know, how can they contribute their careers to this kind of important cause? Um, I would say that it's not uh, one or the other. Uh, I think that, for example, working in a non-profit on corporate campaigns is an extremely high impact thing, or for example, uh, working on policy changes or regulations. Um, mm. And so I think that's really important. Um, but if we step back, you know, big picture, like the decades of, of, of work from early activists trying to kind of convince people to go vegan, um, you know, has had pretty modest impacts. Um, we've seen a little bit of an, an, an increase um, lately, which is encouraging. But it's still a tiny percent of the, the population. So I, I was just yeah. in an event a couple of weeks ago in Sydney, uh, in Australia, and it was a climate event and there was probably 200 people in the room and the, the, the speaker said, you know, hands up if you're, if you're vegan. And I think there was only five of us who put <laughs> no our hands way. up. And this is wow. a climate event, wow. right, where you'd think there'd be lots of people. Mm. Wow. So it kind of goes to show that, like, you know, it's not enough to kind of, you know, just work on the kind of the moral case for going vegan. There has to be something that 
the products need to be attractive and tasty and you know cost effective and um, you know and appealing um, in, in all different dimensions. And that will make it easier. And and to be frank, you know, you just from a simple numbers point of view, if we get a bunch of people who enjoy eating plant based on a regular basis, that's probably a lot more impact than one percent more people becoming you know hardcore vegans. Um, yeah. So I think like yeah, we we need both of those. And look, we know from the numbers as well. Like people who try to go vegan, most people bounce back out. And part of the reason is just it's too hard. Right, it's too hard. Like oh, in a social mm. situation, or they're with their their parents, or with their their girlfriend or boyfriend or partner, and out with a group of friends, and there's no vegan options. Oh, okay, you know, and then just you know, it's really hard. So <laughs> we want to make it you know yeah. easy for people, attractive for people. Um, so we think that we need to work on this in parallel to all the really important work that you know folks in nonprofits are are working on, and mm. that's kind of the the big picture case for it. There's something in there about cost as well, right? I think price parity is something else that's really important. Something I hear from vegans a lot is that, you know, it's so cheap because we're just eating, you know, the chickpeas and everything, but which, you know, yes, can be cheap, but also fruits and vegetables are really expensive comparatively to, um, to cheaper foods that contain animal products. And I think we, yeah, kind of do a, a bit of a disservice by suggesting that it is cheap to be vegan because for, for quite a lot of households, it, that's actually not the case and making everything from scratch, you know, is just not feasible for a lot of families. Um, so I think the, the price element is also something that we have to pay attention to. And I think, like you say, if these replacements taste good, look great, you know, are um, nutritious, um, mm. you know, have have actually nutritional value um, and a cost comparative, then, um, yeah, it seems like that's going to be the, the obvious um, solution long term. Yeah, totally. I, I agree. I mean, of course, if you look at the cheapest proteins on the planet, they're all vegan. So you get your dried legumes and pulses, et cetera. Um, it's millions and millions of people in in India are, are getting their protein intake from from you know those very nutritious sources. But if you're talking about like a equivalent experience to having a chicken or a, you know um, a burger or a steak or a you know stir fry dish with with meat in there, then you're you're getting too expensive. Currently expensive products, and yeah, that's that's sure. I think that has to be a fair comparison. And look, it's not just the the meats products. Like for example. My biggest daily cost is actually like, you know, DHA and EPA supplementation. It's probably one of the, mm. the heavier costs. And that's something that doesn't get talked about, but it's part of the, you know, the, the bit about going vegan. If you're going to get your, you know, one gram, two grams of EPA, DHA, that's expensive from algal sources today. Um, so I think, yeah, it's an important kind of uh, aspect. B12 is, yeah, absolutely important and it's relatively cheap. To, to kind of do but if we want to talk about like you know the healthy omega fats which are important for like brain health and you know child development and aging healthy aging um you know there's a lot of good evidence that it's good to consume more of those but those are expensive coming coming from algal sources today so that's just one example of of many where you know there's specific things sure. which are much more expensive um in a vegan context today and that's why one of the reasons we need to work on this and just to linger on that cost point for a second longer, I think, yeah, it's interesting because I normally live in the UK where plant-based products are fairly cheap and there isn't a huge cost differential between 
the like the vegan cheeses and the non-vegan cheeses and, and the milks and and the like the dairy milks and the plant-based milks. But actually, I kind of traveling through Central America currently, and I'm I was in Mexico, and actually there was a huge markup, a huge difference between the plant-based products in Mexico. I would say like five times wow. what it was in the UK, uh, which is crazy given obviously it's a, it's a lower income country overall. And so the differential between the plant-based and the meat product alternatives like the milks and cheeses, it's like five or 10 times, which is actually crazy. And so I think that really solidified to me both, you know, just because we have really good innovation and products maybe in Western Europe and in the US, it's not the same globally. So I think that makes kind of what you're doing, Simon, and even more important because to have local products to compete rather than, you know, imports are often much more expensive. So I think, yeah, that was a real eye-opener for me is how actually the diff- how large a difference was in other countries relative to like the hub of some of the plant-based products. Agreed. And, and even in those kind of developed, kind of competitive, mature or kind of more advanced Western countries, I think the, the price differentials, there's some good analysis done recently, um, I think by GFI. And it's like anywhere from like a plus 30% to plus, you know, multiple hundred percent for the major categories um, in, in proteins. And so, yes, whilst, you know, there may be price parity in certain kind of, you know, aspects overall, when you kind of average out across your typical intake, it's still, uh, there's a big price premium. And you're right, if you're adding export onto the to the mix um, or import onto the mix, it's even more, um, you, know, you know, the, the range is even more kind of disparate. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's an important one. And in terms of the impact, you're kind of talking how alternative proteins... Yeah, even if quite a small percentage of the population adopted these wholesale, that could have quite a huge impact on animals, maybe more than, Mm. you know, a very small number of people going vegan. I'd be curious to get your thought on what does success look like for you? Is it that maybe 10% of the population or of a given country or region or plant like eat these products all the time? Is it 50% or is it just like you're kind of saying, especially in Asia, you know, both population is growing and meat consumption is per capita is growing. And there's the idea to kind of capture that new growth with alternative protein. So I guess basically, how, how do you see is that impact or like the ultimate goal of some of the work you do in the industry? From a numbers consumption point of view, there's not enough, you know, surface area on the planet to, to produce meat in the way that we're currently producing it for the, the demands in, in the future. And so population still rising at some point in the future will plateau, but at a much higher level than now. Um, but with economic development, we see that trend, you know, that's a pretty linear relationship between kind of, you know, GDP per capita and meat consumption in, in kind of per capita basis. And so if that trend holds out, like there, there literally is not enough, um, you know, kind of surface area to, to produce that meat in the, in the current way. And I think it's fair to say, like, you know, you can't fundamentally radically disrupt, you know, the, the economics of, for example, producing dairy, you still need a certain amount of space and feed and, and the cows are not, you know, changing that rapidly, although they have been genetically selected and certainly chickens have been over the last 50 years, but they're kind of like the low hanging fruit is already done. And so there's not yeah. opportunities to do that. So from that point of view, uh, for sure, like we, we will have to have alternatives or the amount of kind of these protein products need to needs to be reduced. Um, so yes, we want alternatives to success looks like, you know, the majority of all protein consumption, you know, in the next 50 years, let's say is, is from alternative sources. Um, I, I personally would like to see it, the, the vast, vast majority, um, in that sort of time frame. Um, mm. and if you think about it, like, you know, it's also about social norms, like at, at some point, you know, it gets to a point where, <sighs> 
yes, it just becomes like, I think, you know, look at cars, we're in that early stage of the transition to EVs. And you bet you that like in 20 years time, you know, you know, kind of internal combustion engine cars are going to be this, this weird little niche that certain people buy, <laughs> yeah. but most people are just, you know, buying their EVs and doing that. So yeah, I, I think that we want to get to that sort of outcome, you know, over the coming kind of decades. Do you kind of see the transition looking, you know, maybe in the best case scenario, maybe the likely case, kind of in a similar such that, you know, the maybe the takeoff is fairly slow and it's a bit of a fringe weird thing for a while. And then that maybe public investment booms and suddenly, you know, there's this thing people like to talk about, which is like social tipping points. And suddenly people are kind of rushing over to this thing and it becomes the norm. Mm. Is that, would you also expect alternative proteins to follow that same trajectory? So clearly that that there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of like the product itself and the technology. So regardless of anything around, you know, tipping points and so forth. And, and you know, James, with your background, you you know a lot about this sort of topic. So I'd love to hear your, your, your take on it. Um, but certainly the technology and the product like this is um, has got, you know, it's not going to get to big mass market until things improve on the on the taste and the cost and the availability and, and all of those other attributes. Um, but I, I think it's one of those incrementally kind of building things where you kind of the, the more that it gets, you know, um, cheaper, more attractive, better, you know, so-called product performance, um, then the rate of increase of adoption, I think, increases a lot more. Like we're already in some markets at a certain point where now you have like, for example, if you have a group of people going out, you know, there's a chance that one of them may be, you know, flexitarian or, or whatever and that starts to influence you know that's like a, the first tipping point of like okay we need to order one or two dishes you know in this kind of group uh which are like that mm. maybe some more advanced countries it might be like you're starting to get a households where you get a family member who might be you know plant-based or vegan or or somewhere along that path but really for kind of wider um i do believe there is this kind of you know it accelerates as you get uh, more people and then it kind of goes a lot faster once it becomes like you know weird to to do that. But I think we we've got a, a ways to go to to work towards that sort of goal. And what what's your take? Like uh, you know, do you feel it will be the sort of like very slow kind of linear thing, or will it kind of accelerate as you know certain things happen? Yeah, I, I think I would expect most things they kind of have this kind of like yeah this social tipping point phenomenon. And I think there's some. I think it's been slightly overhyped. There was one academic paper in, uh, by Damien Santola and also a book called Change, which, which is really interesting. And like, it makes you want to believe because it's like, you just reach the tipping point of about 25% of the population believe in this minority view and then suddenly it goes um, and becomes like the, the, the majority view and becomes widespread. I just think the academic paper is not very compelling. The way the academic study is framed is that the view is actually whether you call this random face on a screen a name or another name. So it actually has no real... Real, like, real world implication for like you like doesn't cost mm. more it doesn't taste different there's no social pressure so actually it's, it's, in, a, it's in like quite a hyper controlled academic setting that i think won't actually replicate in reality so i'm a bit skeptical of numbers like 20 25 percent uh but mm. i mean overall I, I do expect something like that but i just don't know exactly what that level is and i think it's much higher than than that percentage yeah that sounds about right um like if you look at, for example, where you know we just got a new place, we're looking at like we're, we're going to install solar panels and just turn off the gas and electrifying it all. Um, and solar panels is one of those classic ones where you know it's taken like decades, but incrementally as all of the innovations and the prices come down and the performance per kind of square meter um, has gone up, 
it's just kind of accelerated. And it wasn't, there wasn't like a huge kind of like bump, 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 you know, it was like more like a, just a gradual kind of acceleration. And then that obviously compounds and compounds. Yeah. And now it's getting quite aggressive, um, like the, the, the curves, but um, I'd like to think it's something like that, but I, I think there's also cultural aspects uh, that are maybe you know more challenging in, when it comes to this because you've got food and how you're brought up and your childhood memories and you know family bonds and etc. And then you have other aspects of like you know identity and we have unfortunately this trend of you know um, certain positive things in terms of you know how we're developing as a society but we also get some sort of you know other trends which are perhaps going in different directions which you know is a risk factor when it comes to adopting some of these technology or some of these alternative proteins i'm interested so the majority of the podcast guests um in fact i think all to date have been working for non-profits um so obviously this is a, a different realm for us and i'm interested to know when deciding to invest in a company how much you're mm. thinking about the impact per animal i know you were talking about shrimp paste and potentially the number of lives affected is weighing into your decision making but how much does that um weigh into the decision versus making it just a maximally profitable investment at the end of the day it is a commercial model so we are here to go and you know generate returns um, for our investors and so um, we care about attributes which you know will this be a successful company has it got you know good upside potential so in terms of uh, how we look at the impact so yes we do so we have like a, a number of kind of major categories and we have an internal scoring system and we have like this percentages and so forth um, and one of those kind of major buckets, like we have four buckets. So it's like um, people, so team, uh, product and technology, uh, and then we have impact and opportunity, and and then we have story potential. So impact and opportunity, which is kind of weighted as the highest level, uh, you know, uh, within it, we look at importance of the category in terms of climate impact, because that is kind of one of our mandates is to work on things which are better for the climate. Yeah. Um, and also in terms of, you know, animal impact. So we kind of like balance those out. Uh, so it is one of our kind of major attributes, but it's not the only one. So, um, but on the flip side, it is important. So for example, if we look at a, a project, which is potentially a really good kind of, you know, business opportunity, but a very, very marginal impact on both climate and animals, um, we won't go for those type of um, investments. Um, so, for example, if you take maybe a, a, a type of source, which is kind of like maybe nearly vegan anyway, naturally, you know, a category which is perhaps vegan, but there's a couple of tiny little ingredients that make it non-vegan. If someone comes along with a, a totally, you know, 100%, you know, no animal kind of version of that, it could be successful from a commercial point of view, but it's not going to have a big impact, right? It's not going to move the needle on climate change right. or on kind of number of animals, um, you know, suffering reduced. So we would stay away from those sort of things. Um, and, and on the flip side, so if there's something that would have tremendous positive impact on animals, it's still got to be a viable business. It's still got to, you know, we think it's got to have a, a, a great return potential as well. So yeah, we're looking for things that kind of combine those together, which I think there's quite a lot. Like if you think about it, Asia is so big and the amount of meat being consumed. Um, so yeah, in most cases, it's it's 100% kind of lines up. Even just the fact you're working on 
companies that are set up in that region, I think must must put that ahead of, like you say, those more sort of marginal changes where it's just like removing an, an egg powder or something from a product. Um, the fact that you that you're investing in the first instance in Asia, um, particularly focusing on um, that region, I think, yeah, the the impact potential must be um, fairly large at this point. Yeah, absolutely. The potential is is large, um, but we're starting from a relatively small base. So alternative proteins overall globally are still a very small fraction of total, for example, meat consumption, even in markets like the US where beyond an impossible have kind of you know been there for several years now. Uh, so I'd say like, yes, the long, the potential is there, but we, you know, we're at early, early days still. And so there's, there's quite a lot to, to work on. So when you're thinking about impacts for animals and I'm trying to think concretely, what is the number you kind of plug into your, your spreadsheet or your kind of rubric? Is it, you're thinking, okay, this is a plant-based chicken product focused on Singapore. What are the number of chickens killed in Singapore? And this is kind of the rough number I use, or, or is there another proxy you think that's better suited? It typically is. Um, kind of like a very, you know, high, at a high level, it's kind of, you know, how much suffering is there in this sort of product. And that's kind of like a combination of like how many animals are there with some other kind of characteristics. And look, we're not reinventing the wheel. So we look at like, for example, Rethink Priorities has some really good research into, you know, into this and, and other folks have done a lot of work uh, uh, on this. Uh, so we're looking for kind of a broad thing of like, yes, is this a high impact? And when we, it ends up being like, yes, this is a high impact or a medium impact or relatively lower impact. Like, so, you know, that that's kind of like the end result of that. And we would assign it a score um, for that particular attribute. Mm. Uh, but yes, so we're looking at for impact both the climate as well as on, you know, the number of animals, kind of, um, you know, the amount of animal suffering that we're alleviating or animal lives that we're kind of um, are being reduced out of the, taken out of the animal ag system if this is successful. And, and geographically, yes. So if a company is working on a particular species or a particular replacement product, we would look at like how big is that product as a market and what markets are realistic for that company to to reach into? Is it big enough? Is it justified? For example, we, we looked at, uh, we recently made an investment into a cultivated pet food company. So it's a startup out of Korea mm. doing cultivated pet food and one of the handful of companies who are kind of pioneering this new space. Half of the people on the planet have a pet in their household. Wow. Um, and uh, those pets, uh, a lot of them are eating meat and it may be like scraps and bits and pieces, but they're eating meat. And so it's a climate impact. Like if you just take pet food consumption, it's it ends up being a pretty high climate impact, um, as well as, of course, just adding more, you know, for the consumption um, pile in terms of number of animals. So, so we do try to, you know, do some sort of like numbers analysis. Um, I, I would say it, uh, you know, we can't go infinitely deep because we have to, you know, manage our time. But yeah, yeah we definitely kind of do look at the big picture and, and kind of quantify things. Nice. And yeah, I think the pet food is an interesting example because I think Professor Andrew Knight has some good research on this thing from the UK saying, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like a fifth of all meat, uh, like animal product consumption is related to pet foods, particularly that now there's like a blossoming kind of premium mm. pet food market where they're no longer eating kind of these byproducts or co-products, but actually animals are being killed explicitly for premium pet food, which just mm. seems, seems bonkers to me. But anyway, um, but on the, on the Rethink Priorities research as well, I'd be curious, is the stuff you 
use, is it their research on welfare ranges? So you're trying to look at like the ability to like experience pain and is that ha- is that not like a input into your thinking yeah correct so we'd we'd look at that wow. so we'd look at like number of animals which is like you know various sources and it's fairly well understood like the fao like the un fao um mm. data would give us pretty good numbers by country by market num- number of that you know, animals or weight and we can work backwards and reverse engineer the number of animals and then we would kind of like multiply if you like you know not kind of as as clean as that but we would kind of weight it by know how much you know suffering or welfare kind of capability or impact uh, there would be mm. so it, and it's not a precise kind of you know um, process because sometimes it's just not possible there's so many unknowns there yeah uh, but if you look for example at chicken like that that's a no-brainer right like you know the amount of chickens and how much weight they have and how much stress that puts on their their joints and their their bones and what is it like mm. KFC you know 10% of chickens in the UK don't make it mm. um and then something like mm. you know many tens of percents are kind of suffering from you know severe severe pain so it's kind of like their whole lives is just intense agony like all the time literally um yeah so that's a no-brainer right um the number times the impact is kind of a no-brainer so yeah we try to do that um and look it gets a bit more kind of for example like beef maybe the number of animals is less Maybe depending on the farming condition, it might be relatively better than, for example, of you know factory chicken farming or kind of you know egg laying operation. Um, but the climate impact is very high, so you know that that also is within scope for us. Um, so yeah, it's um, we 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 take both kind of factors in, in in mind. Do you have another example of a company that you've invested in that you think is particularly interesting or innovative at the moment? Sure. Yeah. Um, so. You know, that's one of the, the good things about this job is just getting to work with really cool founders who are working on really interesting kind of ideas. Nice. Uh, just to pick a, maybe one one example is uh, we're working with a company called Fantastic out of um, Singapore, and they have de- development in uh, in India. And they are basically looking at engineering kind of um, better plant-based fats to perform better in, in cooking. So... One of the challenges with, you know, traditional approach of like coconut oil is that it, A, it's, you know, full of saturated fats. So there's kind of arguably a a kind of a health, um, you know, uh, issue there. And B, like the melting point isn't very high. So if you kind of cook the product, then it tends to kind of the fat melts out and that it doesn't kind of, you know, release over time. And the flavor kind of like gets, you know, you know, affected. Whereas if you have some sort of like engineered fat that can kind of melt at a much higher temperature and also encapsulate flavors and potentially be fortified as well. So then you can get like a a flavor release over time as it's cooked for longer, which kind of is closer mimicking animal products. So so this is a a small startup um, and the founder Satnam is kind of a background in, you know, you know, um, materials as well as alternative proteins. and microfluidics as well, mm. and has basically engineered a way to go and um, you know take you know other vegetable oil inputs and kind of structure them into you know things that can have different attributes. Um, and so that's an early prototype stage, and they're kind of testing it. But the early results are pretty promising. So that could mean you know if it's successful, it could mean in like you know two, three, four, five years time, we get products that just have 
you know, a much better fat experience, sensory experience and better performance and, and, you know, potentially healthier as well. Um, so yeah, that's an example of the kind of early stage innovation. That's, that's really exciting. And, you know, mm. you know, it makes us think that there's, you know, there's a long way to go in terms of improving these types of products. How long do you give them to have a sort of a product in it by itself or like a profitable product? What does the timeline look like? That's a great question. So we're typically investing at this early stage, like, you know, pre-seed stage or found, founding stage. Yeah. And then they have to kind of make enough progress and hit certain milestones to be able to get their follow-on funding around. Like typically these companies, they don't instantly turn a profit. They need several years of investment and yeah. they basically need to get investment from external parties um, so they can go and, you know, innovate and make progress. And then ultimately, then they will become profitable companies in the longer term. So for them, it's they have to figure out their runway and like what milestones do they need to hit to have a convincing kind of uh, proposition to later stage investors. So, But to give a ballpark, um, you know, typically the runway may be from one to two, sometimes, you know, two plus years. So they might get an investment from us and then it gives them like a year to go and really prove the prototypes or to take it to, from prototype to kind of early pilot stage or to get the first handful of customers on board for it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then be able to get like later stage funding. Um, so yeah, that's... That's kind of a ballpark. It actually sounds quite difficult because in a way you have actually three kind of like bottom lines of stakeholders. Not only do you have the profit, but you also have the animal impact and the climate impact. It actually makes, maybe, you know, it's hard to maximize any one of those things, but trying to do really well in all three sounds particularly challenging. So I'm just noting that, I guess, having both investors, I assume, from a climate angle as well as an animal angle makes things create that additional bit more tricky. Is that right, do you think? Um I would say that, yeah, you know, pros and cons, right? So one, it, it means that we have to kind of, yeah, look at different things and we can't just pick things that we think are going to be commercially successful and, and don't care, you know, if they wreck the planet in the process or, or anything to take an extreme. Um, so, yeah, we, we do that. But on the other hand, it, it also gives us, a, you know, a focus, like a kind of a North Star for, for us as in, we're trying to go and transform the food system for all the reasons that we all think are, are you know, important um, you know, for climate and, and animal suffering, um, but also, you know, for human health, because ultimately I feel like in the long term we can go and have healthier products as well um, that still taste great. Um, so, yes, we, we need to take into account these different attributes, but it also gives us, like, focus. And sometimes as a, as a startup, let's say we treat ourselves like a startup fund, you know, a startup needs to be really focused on solving a problem and knowing what their purpose in life is. Um, and on the positive, it's kind of very clear what our role is. It's like to go and, you know, to invest profitably and generate great returns in, in, in moving us beyond animal agriculture and solving a bunch of important problems uh, along the way. So, yeah, we, we, we view it in a kind of a positive light. Um, and, and also, frankly, like the decision is more upfront, as in, is this the sort of company we think can have a good impact? And once it's past that stage, then it's kind of like the, the regular sort of things like, how's the company going? Is it executing well? How can we help the founders? It's like the impact thing, if they're successful, the impact thing will come along anyway, just by the nature of what they're doing. So it's not something that we are kind of like, you know, thinking about day to day, whereas we may go and think about, okay, 
how can we help you to get introductions to the next investors um, at later stage or mm. or how can we help you with some strategic decision but the impact thing is kind of already built into the company so yeah that's usually at the upfront do we invest or not is where we you know really focus in on that mm. makes sense what are your thoughts or kind of expectations on when alternative proteins will reach cost and taste parity with the cheapest animal products such as chicken i guess do you like a like do you think this will happen for sure and b is if yes when do you think these kind of outcomes are likely well i think that there's no fundamental limits as in like you know like just to first principles like the inputs you know at scale eventually um and the process and the outputs there's no fundamental limit that says, no, you will never be able to, I, I believe, never be able to kind of like get to that sort of like level. And actually, if you take chicken, plant-based chickens are starting to get cost competitive with like, you know, premium and also kind of like mid-level chicken products, maybe not at the the, 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 the very cheapest yet, uh, but, you know, we're already getting decently close now. Products still need to get better and, you know, you know, the, 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 the texture and the taste profile but like on a cost basis it's, it's making progress um so i think like you know i would hope and expect that like within let's say 20 years let's put a number on it that you would be able to get to price parity across the different technologies like you know ultimately we want cultivated that would be great if we could get 100 percent chicken sales and that product you know is is at price parity with the cheapest chicken um, but in the meantime, things like hybrids and plant-based um, products, I think will will you know I, I absolutely can get there, um, even the, for the cheapest ones, because like at the end of the day, the, the kind of like the chickens can't really go any further. They're already so heavy; they can't like you know, you know the lifespans are already kind of compressed as much as possible. I don't think they can go and have the same rate of improvement as what we can have in, in alternative proteins, um, just in kind of product development. So I think like big picture, although sometimes it's it's easy to get discouraged in the short term, if you kind of step out a bit and think about like, this is all happening in the blink of the eye in terms of, you know, we've been eating meat for like, you know, literally, you know, many, many thousands of years. Um, and now in, in one generation, we have a chance to transition that all over, um, you know, or the vast majority over, um, then I think it's kind of puts it in perspective. So yeah, I think so. I think it's it's going to be possible, starting with kind of plant based and then hybrid products, and ultimately we want kind of you know full, you know animal equivalent kind of cultivated cells uh, to be at that sort of like level. Um, so a lot of work to do, but I think fundamentally I feel positive that it's possible if there is the investment to to keep the R and D going. Just to clarify, by hybrid, you mean often like a mix of plant-based and yeah. actual animal protein or a mix of cultivated animal protein. Is that right? That's exactly right. So hybrid is, it's a bit confusing. You, you get a couple of terms thrown around and sometimes they, they mix messages but or mix meanings. So blended is typically referring to real animals or as in slaughter, animal slaughter products blended with plant-based ingredients. So you know, we see a couple of like companies who are attempting that. It, the, the first attempts haven't been so successful with consumers, but I think arguably there's still kind of a path for those types of companies. We, we, we don't invest in those companies as part of our fund mandate, but that's kind of blended. Hybrid, on the other hand, is like uh, plant-based with cellular agriculture, which refers to fermentation or, or, or cultivated. So arguably impossible 
is the first example of a kind of a mass hybrid product because it uses precision fermentation to get its, you know, its heme equivalent um, compounds in, which provides kind of, you know, um, various attributes that, that make it more meat-like. Um, so, yeah, I think hybrids is going to be the way forward, um, like for, for the next several years, as in it, you get the benefit of the taste, um, you know, coming from a certain percentage of cells, animal cells. Um, and then that's sufficient to really make plant-based a lot more compelling. Um, and I think it's it's early days, but there's some pretty interesting kind of internal as well as I think a handful of, no, I think it's all internal, internal kind of like taste tests, which show that, yeah, it, you know, adding a small percentage of animal cells in different ways kind of does improve the consumer experience. I think that's always such an interesting balance because, you know, vegans would, would be... Um, against that blended model but pragmatically we're not the target right we are already um convinced as such so yeah i think it's always always challenging and always comes with um Mm. yeah disagreement but i think pragmatically speaking that is the way forward if we're trying to encourage the rest of the population to transition and at least a part of their diet to be more plant-based or or at least reducing their animal protein consumption yeah I, I agree like and even cultivated some vegans may not want it because it's like it's you know it, it's it's really the the animal products and it originally came from a you know a, a small biopsy and you know and it may not have been a kind of a lethal biopsy it's just you know a small sample but but they may feel like an ick factor of it. I personally, I wouldn't like. I would be right, right for it as soon as it's kind of available. Um, you know, I, I would <laughs> enjoy those products. Um, It'd be surprising if, if, given your investment role, that you'd actually not try cultivated meat when it was ready. So I think that makes total sense. Yeah. That you're pretty excited for exactly. it. Exactly, <laughs> and, and I think my partner Mikhail has tasted something like maybe eight different, eight or nine at this stage, different kind of cultivated meat products from different companies, and um, so yeah, I think. Uh, absolutely but but at the end of the day you know we're the tiny percent of the market the kind of you know the the, the ethical vegans it's like you know it's the 97 percent of people who are you know uh, happily eating meat it's you know it's it's to them it's like it's healthy it's normal and it's it's what everyone does and they enjoy it yeah that's that's the folks that we want to get eating less and ultimately you know transition fully over into these things what are some of the key challenges that are facing alternative proteins right now? We've talked about the availability, just generally um, lack, I guess, of investment at this point, um, the products themselves. Is there something that stands out to you as kind of the key challenge of the moment? You know, it's it's been said a lot of times, but I really think it's like the, the fundamentals first. You have to solve the fundamentals of like, you know, price you know, nutrition and nutrition perception, mm. um, and then taste and texture. And as you mentioned, availability. So it's, if you have great products and they're not available where people buy, um, then yeah, that's not, that's not great. Um, so yeah, prices, you know, there's various different attributes to that, but it's like part of it is scale. Part of it is innovation, like, you know, and, and it's a bit different on the plant-based side versus the cell ag side. So on plant-based, it's about like scale up and machinery and and bigger production runs and more continuous production runs and, and okay. kind of you know and and you know uh, optimizing inputs and driving down the cost of you know ingredients etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, logistics uh, those sort of things 
On the sell ag side, the price there's still a lot of kind of you know work to be done because if you think about the background, this is all coming from essentially the pharma technology, so pharma industry. So you know pharmaceuticals are all about like high value, low you know um, low volume products, and now we're transitioning to food, which is the is the opposite. Um, so there's kind of like a transition time where you do it at very small scale to prove that it works, but then you figure out okay. How do I make it, you know, grow faster? How do I make it, um, you know, feed it with lower cost inputs? You know, the feedstocks and the yeah. you know, the cell based media, um, and what are the sources of the ingredients for those? And and you kind of like you know work on those. So there's a lot more work to be done, um, but but fundamentally, like everyone agrees that we need to get you know, costs down. Um, so that's kind of like a big one. Nutrition and health. I think this is pretty obvious that um, look. There's been uh, a lot of research already showing kind of, you know, on a equivalent basis, even like the existing plant-based alternatives to, you know, you know, the, the, the conventional option, um, it's still healthier for you, even though it would have some, you know, sodium and kind of, you know, some fat content. Yeah. But fundamentally, like plant-based products should be healthier, um, you know. So now it's just a, people are experimenting with like, you know, do we make it healthier or do we have like different things? For example, Impossible has a range of products which is kind of indulgent, um, as in it's less focused on kind of nutritional and it's just all about the, the the flavor and the taste. And then it has other kind of products which are kind of like trying to get, you know, a healthier profile. And then there's a perception, which is like not the reality, but there's, you know, work required to be done in, in terms of consumer perception and kind of countering some of the, mm. you know, some of the, you know, the the FUD, you know, the fear, uncertainty, doubt, which is kind of out there, which is driven, you know, by, you know, sometimes by media, sometimes by influencers, sometimes obviously by the, you know, the the, the lobbyists and the and the kind of entrenched interests. Yeah. Um, and then fundamentally, taste and texture. So you know, making the products taste better, perform better. Like simple products, like mince products, are pretty decent today. But if you get into whole cuts and like chunks of meat and strips and chunks and you know uh, bigger pieces, um, there's still a long way to a lot of work to be done. Um, but also some exciting innovation um, that's happening in that space. So I'd say like yeah, those are the kind of key challenges from a you know consumer side. And, and then there's other attributes from the you know like investment and and regulation regulations and other things that i guess we can get into but um from a consumer side i, I think those are the key ones um, and i did mention before like cultural so this is something that maybe is broader than just alt proteins but you know there there is that kind of cultural aspect but we can work on the other stuff anyway and we will improve the situation um so it's not like we don't have to wait for cultural things to suddenly line up and be be perfect like you know we can make progress um, by working on those other attributes so it sounds like on the plant-based side at least initially it's, it's a process of well, the getting cost down is kind of more reliant on like yeah kind of you said scale and kind of improving industrial processes and like slightly more on the engineering side rather than like the fundamental science we're more for the cultivated it's more like we just need kind of like the hard science which I don't know anything about, like synthetic biology and stuff. Is that kind of right? Is that the kind of distinction you might draw between at least those two areas of things? I think that's that's right. Um, but that said, like the, the plant-based products need to get better. So there is some fundamental innovation. And, and like we mentioned hybrids before, so it's basically 
borrowing from that. Um, so I think there's an innovation, but like, for example, even if they kept the formulations them, the same, um, there's still opportunities to improve how it's made. Like the, the same formulation could be made in more efficient ways. And, you know, it is, it's also a scale issue. Like if you get a larger scale, like if you can get a larger facility, which can per process more then you get your cost down, but you may not have enough demand initially to fill all that capacity. So are there smart ways to fill that capacity with other stuff? so that you can get your product to come down in price. Um, so for example, we have a portfolio company that's moved into a, a larger facility and they are kind of like, you know, open to, for example, white label and, and uh, white label for those who don't know is like, you know, where you make a product, but it's labeled by a different brand uh, as their own. So for example, a supermarket brand, like a, you know, uh, a waitress or whatever um, that could be their own branded product, but it's made by a supplier and it could be in the same facility where that supplier makes their own branded um, products. So I think there's some, you know, there's ways to to um, scale up and therefore reduce the costs um, through that. And a couple of our portfolio are kind of at that stage of like, you know, they've got some great products and now it's like, how do we scale this up and reduce costs? Yeah, and in terms of like the innovation you talk about, that's needed both maybe on, yeah on the plant based and the cultivated. I guess how much of that innovation will come through? Do you think investment from governments or public investment into this research and development, or do you think it'll come from private companies? And I guess do you have a sense that the private sector has it covered, or actually we do need large sums of government funds to actually do some of this fundamental research? We need more sources of funding, particularly like government, to get involved. So. I don't like if you look at take an analogy like to um, solar technology. There was a lot of government funding for that for literally you know years and and even decades before the VC investment kind of really you know started. And even then, it took a while. A VC investment started around kind of early two thousands, like two thousand to two two thousand and three. It kind of started and it's increased and increased and increased. And it's taken twenty years to kind of get to a really you know now where it's it's in many cases, cheaper than fossil fuels um, in many markets um, for the same kind of energy production. So I, I definitely think that government uh, needs to play more of a role because certainly on the cell ag side, um, there's a lot of kind of fundamental work. And we don't want work to be siloed, you know, within companies like this. There should be some kind of shared, you know, uh, academic work, um, which is often government, you know, university government funded, um, that I think can kind of like provide a foundation on top of which like then the companies can innovate in their own particular areas. Mm. So for example, in, in, you know, the equivalent in like, so biomedical side, there's a lot of like fundamental research that's been done into, for example, like mouse models or whatever, um, or and then companies are then built on that. But like they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Every single company had to go and do their own work um, in this space. Mm. So I think, yeah, it's very important that we get more government. And we're seeing some early signs of that. For example, in Netherlands, um, you know, we're seeing governments starting to put in some, you know, some real real numbers, like millions of dollars of funding into, you know, into research and applied research. Mm. Um, and you know, so we're starting to see the, the early stages of, of that. 
I guess that's helping on the public perception side as well, right? That we're seeing that the popularity is increasing just due to the government investment. It's therefore like a, a more sort of public investment. Um, obviously, it's public spend. So do you think that's having, do you think that will have, if that continues to increase, do you think that will have an important impact on public perception around the topic? I think so. I think that um, perhaps maybe not as much as some of the other factors, Um but yeah, I think there's sort of background level of like, okay, this has been, you know, this technology or this approach is legit and it's been backed by, you know, my, by my government. Mm. For example, um, I, I living in Melbourne in Australia and our state government, Victorian um, state government, recently just made a multi-million dollar investment. Their investment arm made an investment into a dairy precision fermentation company. So making dairy proteins from precision fermentation. So without any cows involved. And so that sort of thing. And and that got coverage. Like um, that was covered on the national broadcaster on ABC. And and my mom, who's not vegan, but she listens to, you know, ABC radio and she heard about the story and we chatted (laughs) about it. And so, yeah, it starts to like, okay, the government is, is, is getting involved in this sector. So I'd say it's it's not the driving thing. It's not the thing that's going to get you to order the dish at the at the restaurant. Yeah, but it is kind of like a background endorsement and comfort and and um, you know acceptance factor. I think that that builds up, which is important longer term. Yeah, definitely. How do you prioritize your investment portfolio between um, the different technologies? I'm assuming, as you were saying previously, that some are just significantly more expensive than others. Do you specifically prioritize one over another based on just how much money needs to be plugged into them in order for them to get to that sort of successful or profitable point? So stepping back globally, um, it's roughly about two thirds, one third. So I think it's like two thirds of investment globally is like last year was into cultivated uh, products, um, I think, and one third. Um, I I have to check the timescale on that. So I might check that. But it's the majority has been in the kind of uh, cell ag, so not just cultivated, sorry, precision fermentation as well, molecular farming. Um, For us, we... we, uh, take a balanced approach. So we don't want to um, you know, invest just in cultivated or a cell ag. We want to invest across. Partly it's because we believe in a future where there'll be hybrids. So there'll be like coming together of different types of technologies. Right. Partly it's it's like a you know an investment kind of you know you know portfolio management approach where you're kind of balancing the different type of investments. So some are more speculative, longer-term projects, and some are kind of here and now executional, operational-type projects. Um, so we are kind of like um, yeah, balancing uh, between those. Um, and look, different investors have different outlooks. Some will not invest in certain things. Um, you know, and they they say only we're only investing in this particular technology. But for us, I think they they likely will have roles to play in the future system if we fast forward like 10 years likely these technologies will be good at different things and work together in different ways um and so it makes sense for us and also frankly it's like we're not quite sure like we don't know which ones like you know maybe there's a fundamental breakthrough and it becomes very very cheap to ferment proteins uh, you know in 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 new ways and and therefore like it blows everything else out of the water cost cost wise um it's conceivable so yeah we're taking a bit of a balanced approach personally yeah that seems logical i think it's similar across the nonprofit space where you know 
trying to put funds across multiple different interventions towards the same goal and not just plugging everything into one thing that we know currently is working okay, perhaps that's going to be less effective in the future. Um, so yeah, trying to have a, a more broad and um, pluralistic approach to the that end goal. Yeah, I think so. And it's also like, um, you know, the, the we're not yet at maturity as in like, it's not like there is a dominant, you know, technology or company that's really like, you know, at a huge mass market scale and needs that sort of large uh, mass kind of funding. Yeah. Um, so the equivalent in, in like a, you know, a, you know, a nonprofit giving kind of perspective might be like you have your malarial bed nets and they're proven and, and it's a very effective way to kind of, you know, save lives. Um, and maybe the bulk of the, the funding is going to that sort of like, you know, mature established approach, but then you're still making small, smaller bets in, you know, in new ways or new things that are, Kind of you know tackling kind of you know um, problems in perhaps kind of innovative you know, new ways. Um, so I'm not sure if that's a great analogy because we don't have the equivalent yet of of that in our protein. It's still too early, but sure. Um, I think you know the, the balanced approach of like making multiple bets and supporting different approaches. Um, I, I think for us seems to make sense. Yeah, because from the little I've read of alternative proteins, I think there is, I guess I get the vibe from what I've read and and I think we'll link it below, which is a techno-economic analysis by someone called David Humbert, who's commissioned by Open Philanthropy. And it has a fairly pessimistic view. And I'm sure, I think it was a couple of years ago now, and yeah, I had a fairly pessimistic view on particularly uh, cultivated products. And I think the, the claim was, it was it's unlikely that they would ever reach cost parity with, with the cheapest animal products based on some limiting factors. And, you know, it's a hundred page, hundred plus page report, which I did not read uh, fully <laughs> myself, but there are some summaries, which we'll link to by actually rethink priorities and by some other people. But I guess some of the, I guess David Humbert was saying that there are some kind of technological barriers, particularly around, you know, the cost of the inputs, like you were saying, and this, I think you mentioned cell cultured media and also amino acids as, as well as you kind of saying we're, difficulty moving to a high volume but lower value mm. kind of product which then requires you know difficulty of keeping you know you, you can't use pharmaceutical grade bioreactors anyway all, all this stuff I'll, I'll link below mm. I, I don't know that much about but anyway i guess the question for you is I, I guess what are your thoughts on these kind of technological challenges proposed and like do you think that this is just like a much more speculative technology and like has a low chance of working out but like you said the upside is so big it's worth investing in it regardless or is that kind of how you view cultivated or is there something else that makes you more optimistic yeah i mean like on an ev basis expected value basis then it it, it certainly still makes sense um to invest but we also feel like mm. you know it's still relatively early and some of the assumptions and certainly you know i'm not a um, kind of a you know a cell biologist or kind of a scientist in this particular area so i'll defer to our advisors who are um so certainly there are kind of like key challenges but i think some of the early assumptions may not be true in the in the future as in cost of certain kind of inputs you know mm. certain things have just there's never been a requirement to source them in alternative ways um and it could be that you know we and, and you know we we hear of startups and talk with startups who are looking at this kind of supply chain for cultivated. So they don't do the cultivated products, but they are working on specific proteins that are like an important and costly part of the mix. And they're coming at it with different approaches and different technologies. So it could be like, you know, at the moment, the way those, you know, the, 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 the import chains work, um, that it is challenging to kind of get to like, you know, cost parity on, on current approaches. 
so I don't think there's any disagreement about that. Like, but I think there are people working on kind of alternate approaches. So I wonder if those kind of assumptions will be accurate in a few years' time. For example, we are a small investor in Val, which is one of the kind of um, cultivated meat companies, in, actually out of Australia. And some of the assumptions in that report, they've already surpassed internally, like some of the costs that got down lower than some of yeah. you know what the reports are. But that's not to say that the other important engineering challenges aren't there. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like they've magically kind of got to, got to that stage. Um, but I'm just, you know, it's, it's early and making projections on kind of early numbers is always kind of like challenging. Yeah. Um, but no, we, we remain long-term optimistic, but we think it is a longer term play for that. But don't forget we have hybrids. So like if, if it turns out that like, it's going to take more than 10 years to get to, you know, cost parity for hundred percent sales, you can still put a lower percent of sales and have a big impact on the product and the, you know, the taste and the, you know, the other attributes. So I think that like hybrids, I think are a, a way to kind of you know uh, make progress even while you're kind of working to bring the cost curves down. Maybe everyone's going to start investing in Val now. Now that you've said they've surpassed those internal <laughs> limits, um, just to be like this is not financial advice, and but maybe you can talk to Simon if you are interested. Um, yeah, I, I think definitely. I think uh, I think yeah. In terms of like innovation, it is definitely hard to predict. And I always remember a famous graph I've seen of scientists predicting like the floor price of solar um energy and then what actually happens over time and just basically continuously kept plunging through the predicted floor price um yeah and it kind of shows that actually we're not always that great at predicting how innovation will change and how technologies will change so i think that's at least one thing that is reasonable to be like you know yeah humans are fallible even though people who make these predictions are experts in the field you know science is just a bit of an un kind of an unexpected world sometimes. So I think that's definitely, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, I, I think so. I'm not, yeah. And it's a, look, I'm not dismissing and, and thinking it's going to be easy. And there are key challenges. And we know from our portfolio, we've invested in, you know, um, like 10 plus kind of cell ag companies. And we know that there are challenges that need need to be overcome. Um, and, but I would be worried if they weren't making progress. Like if they were like, mm, we're, we're out of ideas, you know, but it's not at that sort of stage. It's like, you know, we've got ideas, we just need to execute on them and we're making progress in, in different in different ways. So, yeah, yeah, I think I'm long, with long-term optimistic and, and uh, but still we've got to, you know, look at every product uh, project and, and really ask the tough questions like, you know, why do we think that this team is the one who we think can, can make a breakthrough in this or make real progress in this? Um, so that we've still got a high bar, but we we um, you know we are long term optimistic on this. So in terms of other challenges, while we're on the topic of challenges for the old protein industry, there's been some new research recently by also by Rethink Priorities, very popular name on this episode, uh, and Jacob Peacock in particular, who looked at kind of what we've been talking about, but not explicitly about this idea of you know price, taste, and convenience being the most important factors in basically shaping how acceptance and uptake of alternative proteins will look like over time. And his research, which we'll link to below, basically finds that, you know, at least he, he believes based on his research that it's kind of an over, oversimplified model such that price, taste, and convenience alone don't dictate like consumer behavior and there's other factors, whether that's social or cultural factors like we've spoken about, also things like nutrition, which you kind of mentioned, but also even in scenarios or experiments where these things are kind of held constant due to you know, experimental 
controls by academics, still there wasn't a huge uptake of these alternatives, particularly plant-based products. I guess, what are your thoughts on this kind of hypothesis? And I guess, is this something you believe in or do you think other factors are much more important than we've maybe been speaking about today? I think it is kind of like the most important question for plant-based. Um, I would say that um, price, taste, convenience, accessibility, these are necessary but not sufficient, I think. Um, and so we, um, if we got price, taste, convenience overnight and suddenly like the products were equivalent, we would still have work to do to go and get the majority of people to go and you know, adopt these, these products. Um, so, mm. you know, there, there's a reason why, um, certain consumers would, would like, you know, maybe products that are at a premium to their, their cheaper alternatives, um, but they still prefer them for, for other reasons. Like, why do you enjoy a Starbucks kind of expensive kind of latte at, at a Starbucks versus just getting a cheap one at a 7-Eleven or a kind of a local service station? Um, you know, there, there's clearly other factors than just, you know, uh, pricing. Um, so taste is, is part of that. So I, I agree with the kind of that part of the conclusion. I think where I'm perhaps, you know, disagreeing and, and look, there, there's a lot of really thoughtful responses from different folks to that, um, analysis, including from GFI. So I'd encourage people to, to, to look at the forum post and, and have a look at Bruce Friedrich's kind of response and, and others. But I think like this, the studies that this was, were based on were very small scale and pretty early, and I think they're really hard to extrapolate. So, for example, certain university canteen environments where there's like different halls and how how kind of like people are going between the different halls and, and getting access to the different products. So I think it's hard to extrapolate from kind of early things. And, and also like, you know, you know people's um, perceptions change over time. So like if you go to another technology and you you ask them about it really, really early, they'd say, oh, this is really dorky. You know, I don't want to be involved in that. Like let's say, for example, mm. um, balancing like Segway, maybe people look at the early Segway scooters and it's like, oh, that looks really dorky. I don't want to be involved in something like that where I'm kind of like, <laughs> you know, on this thing. And now I look around and maybe it's not exactly a segue, but it's like everyone zooming around on their e-scooters and, you know, and various other kind of variations <laughs> on that. Um, maybe virtual reality, virtual reality, augmented reality is kind of on that similar curve where like early on, you know, people are like, oh, this is awkward. And, you know, someone's got a camera strapped to their eye. And now we've got like, you know, really cool looking Ray-Bans with like, you know, integrated cameras in there and, and, you know, I think I think in a few years Apple's coming out with their you know, Vision Pro, and and that's going to change perceptions as well. So I think like mm. how people perceive things is not a static, it's not a static kind of um, condition. I, I think it evolves with with how good the products are, um, but also with like how things change on a kind of cultural side and. So I think it's just really hard to extrapolate. And also it depends on market. For example, we've seen, you know, I think that post referenced like, you know, Burger King and their Whopper, right? And if you look at the deployment in relative like success in US versus Germany, for example, in Germany, it's been a huge success um, uh, versus the US and similar product. Maybe it is the same product, I'm not quite sure, um, but it's it's performing very differently in different um, contexts. Mm. So that kind of goes to show that, like, you know, it depends on context and attitudes and other, and other factors. Um, 
So I'd say it's really hard to kind of, you know, hard to draw too many conclusions from an early stage thing when it's this early in the game. Um, mm. But I still think the fundamental point about like, it's not just those price taste convenience, like there's other things that have to, you know, ch- change or be improved on or, or be worked on uh, as well that are important. I think most people, like you said, would agree that, you know, that, like you said, those three things are important, they're necessary, but not necessarily sufficient. So I think, yeah, and that's a really good point. And we'll definitely link that forum post because as you said, there's lots of good comments from both both Boost from GFI and other people, uh, including I think actually some really insightful comments from Johannes Akfer talking. So he works in, he's a climate funder and he kind of, kind of speaks about how things have changed in like the climate tech world, particularly around solar and the analogs there. So there's a useful thread I would also follow that we'll link to. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that moving on to maybe topics that are slightly closer to our podcast, you know, the name. You mentioned <laughs> shrimp paste before, so we want to come back to shrimp paste because it would be uh, remiss to do the whole podcast and not mention that. I, I guess, yeah, so this is Carolina from Charity Entrepreneurship sent this question in, which I think is super important. I guess, what are your thoughts on investing in shrimp paste? Like we said, lots of animals killed for this product. Have you thought about it? Are you making any steps? And yeah, what's happening in the alternative shrimp paste space? Well, we've invested in, in um, cultivated crustaceans. So you know, and maybe this is a longer term thing, but ultimately, if that's successful, that can you know provide like a real replacement for 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 shrimp products. So, I was a personal angel investor in a company called Shock Meats, which was kind of like the the, the early mover, the first one in there, and and then Better Bite as the fund has invested in uh, Clever Meat, which is working on cultivated crustaceans, um, specifically or shrimp. Um, so yes, we're invested into into this. Um, and I would say, like, it's interesting because, you know, shrimp paste is, like, prevalent in, in Asia. It's used in a lot of kind of cuisines. Um, there is actually a market already for, like, you know, vegetarian shrimp paste or, like, and the same for fish sauce and, and other kind of, you know, um, kind of more on the sauce and condiment side of the, uh, uh, of the house as part of the uh, ingredients for cooking or just kind of uh, as part of the meals. Yeah. Um, so there is kind of like a starting point um, for that. But I think that, yeah, if we're talking about like a real one-for-one replacement, then, then that kind of goes towards more like cultivated or maybe it's a hybrid in, in the future. So, yeah, from an impact perspective, it, it clearly um, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, we just kind of have to deliver on, on that. And, mm. But on the positive, it's like an easier product as in it's not a structured product. You don't actually have to have the full shrimp, um, you know, looking exactly the same and, you know, yes. the, the bounciness of the, of the flesh as you eat it. Um, it's, it's very different. Um, so, yeah, I think it might ultimately end up being kind of an, e- an easier product than, you know, a, a full shrimp experience. Out of interest, how, how come do you think it's not a good fit for plant-based? Because that seems like a surely an easier way to get into that given you don't have some like, textural complexities like you mentioned. There already is, I, I believe, like if I'm not wrong. Um, I, I don't personally I have too much like shrimp paste in, in my cooking. <laughs> um, but I be- believe there are already vegetarian kind of like ones would have been around because don't forget like a lot of these oh. markets where this is um, popular, there is a Buddhist community and, um, you know, these sort of alternatives kind of oh. do exist maybe from traditional food makers. Um, but certainly, for example, fish sauce, you know, there's some pretty decent fish sauces now and, you know, we use them kind of regularly in our family, um, for cooking. Um, so I believe there are those and there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, modernize them, make them better. 
Um, but ultimately, if you want exactly like a hundred percent kind of match of like flavor profile, etc., then you know ultimately you'd want to have some cultivated, um, either fully or partially as as part of the product. Um, so yeah, I think it's yeah it's an important one, and this is probably one of those cases where super high impact, um, but itself it's kind of like a bit of a niche thing like okay it's an it's an element of your cooking but it's not the only element you don't have shrimp paste for 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 a, a shrimp paste soup right you're not just spooning this up and eating it so it's kind of but it does have a huge impact so yeah that's uh, i agree agree with that kind of like the premise that we should try to have great alternatives for this from an from a kind of just a purely impact numbers point of view so generally, I would encourage everyone to head to the Better Bite Ventures website. I think it was really interesting for me to read through all of the uh, companies, founders, businesses that you have invested in so far. It's really interesting just to see that wide range of different products right across different animal um, replacement products. Um, so yeah, I would head there for, for more information and some really great products that are being invested in right now. Um, Simon, for you, is there a bit of news or something uh, in the media, something that's come to light that's particularly excited you recently? Well, I think the big one is just the in the US, um, getting the regulatory approval and, and these products can now be served on plates um, in the US um, <laughs> and albeit at small yeah. scales. And so FDA and... USDA kind of um, doing that and, and folks being able to actually try it. And yes, like, you know, tiny scale, you know, a lot of challenges to produce the volume required even at that this kind of early stage, but it's letting people really go and try it and, and kind of capture their imagination and getting, you know, policymakers and, and you know, through to average consumers, like to, to actually try it. Just like in Singapore, we've seen, like, I think it's fair to say that the... yeah overall Singapore population is much more receptive and positive about cultivated because they know it's like, okay, very small percentage have tried it, but they know it's real and they know that it's in a restaurant and it's kind of like it's moved out of sci-fi into, oh, that's cool. I can go to that restaurant <laughs> um, and people are eating it. Yeah. And I know a guy who, who tried it. So I think that's kind of exciting from a, a you know regulatory. It could have been years and years, right, from what I understand, like it was a pleasant surprise for the industry. Um, mm. But I think that's a big one and it's the US, so it's a, it's a huge market and it hopefully will set the tone for other countries as well to come. Nice. And what's a few pieces of media you'd recommend to listeners? And obviously this could also include your own podcast, which you host. So yeah, feel free to plug any kind of, kind of books, uh, articles or things you want to share with people about your work or, the, or related work. Um, I'd say like GFI is a great source, like lots of really good materials, podcasts, articles, reports, um, also community. So if you want to get involved in the various communities, a shout out to kind of, you know, uh, you know, animals impact kind of um, Slack and, and online communities. Um, so some really thriving kind of conversations out there. And so really a big fan of um, that work. Um uh, in terms of podcasts, I really like, for example, the Red to Green uh, podcast, which is kind of uh, you know a scientist kind of um, explaining things for regular folks. So, <laughs> how does this fermentation thing work, and you know, and what are some of the attributes, and just really interesting with a lot of historical kind of like back back backstory to it. So check that out, um, and also eighty thousand hours. It's a wonderful recent um, interview with um, someone from GFI uh, Europe. Uh, at you know, with a real deep dive into what are the 
the opportunities or the kind of the research bottlenecks and opportunities um, to progress this whole industry. So if you're from a scientific, or even if you're not, if you just want to understand what's going on, it's a wonderful listen, like a real deep dive, like, you know, two, three hours solid uh, listen uh, on that. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's some really good resources out there. And is there any way that people can get more involved in your work? Obviously, um, those of us sitting at home with millions in the back pocket um, could consider becoming an investor, but for also for us um, less wealthy folk, is there um, ways that we can support your work? So I would say that, um, well, we always want to kind of support just personally, you know, apart from kind of investing, you know, I like to kind of support and have calls with folks who are looking to kind of get into old protein or maybe asking for advice. And I've also like just outside of old protein, you know, help to support some of the, um, the projects and, um, the interesting ones that are going on on the nonprofit side as well. So, you know, um, so reach out to, to me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest for, for better bike where we're always open to interns, volunteers and interns. Oh, great. Uh, so in, for example, like analyst roles, so you don't have to be a scientist, but like someone to help us to kind of compile, you know, research and kind of like, you know, uh, you know, kind of keep up to date of, of the various news and developments and so forth. Uh, we're looking also at community builders. So as in folks to help us build out some community initiatives, um, around kind of you know food and climate um in in asia pacific great so i'd encourage folks if they're interested in you know internal volunteer roles um to reach out as well and linkedin's the best way to, to to connect with me okay perfect we'll link all of that in the show notes as well as as always everything else that we've discussed um and any topics that have come up they'll be there with links awesome yeah Thanks so much for joining us, Simon. It's been such a great uh, experience to chat with you and learn more. I think, yeah, it's our, it's our first old protein episode. I think it's a bit overdue. So it's been nice to have you on <laughs> and yeah, get a bit of deep dives. So, yeah, appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for the fun discussion and, and also for all the work that both of you do. It's a really important topic and I'm glad we're kind of having this opportunity to really go deep and with your other guests as well. Um, so looking forward to lots of great episodes to come as well.